Well, here's my question for each and every one of you this morning. What is the reputation of the church, the church at large, among outsiders, among the unchurched today? What is their perception of the church here in Miami? What is their perception of Palm Vista Community Church? Should we care? And if so, how should we care? And lastly, do you care? What unbelieving, unchurched people would have to say about us. How difficult it is, you've probably experienced this, to read the press releases of a fallen pastor. I don't relate the word fallen, those who have chosen sin to conceal it and then later have been exposed. Last fall, we heard the confession of one very prominent pastor who had fallen into sexual immorality. And I read his quote, so I want to read it to you this morning. He said this in confession before his congregation. The fact is, I am guilty of sexual immorality. And I take responsibility for the entire problem. I am a deceiver and a liar. There's a part of my life that is so repulsive and dark that I've been warring against it for all of my adult life, he said. I am so sorry for the circumstances that have caused shame and embarrassment for all of you. I remember reading that statement. And like you, I felt sorrow for this man. I did not know this man, but he's a pastor, and I'd be the brother in Christ. I was sobered as well, because I realized, for the grace of God, there go I, that I as a pastor am not above what occurred with this man. But there's something else going on intuitively as well, as I read this. Perhaps it was in your heart as well. It was a sense of shame. It was the reproach of those on the outside looking in at God's church, exposed for all to see. I felt it. It was personal. And it's personal to God because it's His church. See, our sin doesn't just affect us, but it affects the church to whom we belong. And that's where we're going this morning. So the question I have is this. What picture are we sending of our Savior and his church to a watching world? Because whether we like it or not, our lives are press releases about God's church. Your life, my life. I can see the effects of other's sin on me and the church as a whole. But do you see the effects of your sin as well? on the church and its reputation. That was the concern of Paul in this letter this morning to the Ephesian church. And it should be our concern as well. And that is the title of my message, Elders and Deacons, Character Matters. For the sake of the church, live a life that is above reproach. We're going to unpack that statement this morning. But first I want to set the stage for our text. And it would be so appropriate just to pray as we do so. So let us pray. Dear Lord, in some ways this morning it is not difficult to preach this message. Nor necessarily to hear it, but it certainly is to apply it. Lord, I ask this morning that you would grace me to be able to deliver your word and that you would grace us as hearers Protect us this morning, O Lord, from any rote moralism, Lord, of to-dos. One more thing I got to do. One more way I have to behave. Lord, may our hearts this morning be ablaze with the glory of God and your church, Father. May we see the bigger picture of our sin when we also see your grace abound. And may our lives be a testimony of your living grace as seen in your church, which you have purchased by your blood. So, Father, lift our eyes this morning 
put this text in its context. Father, just don't make it about us. It's much bigger. It is about you. It is about your reputation. It is about your glory as seen by all right here at Palm Vista. So Lord, build us as a church. Use this text and passage to help us that we may not only be individuals, but a church that would be a brave reproach and thus bring honor and glory to your name, we pray. Amen. Well, the year is 56 AD. The Apostle Paul is about to complete his third missionary journey. In fact, he is hastening back to Jerusalem to be there in time for Pentecost. But he has one more stop to make among the churches that he gives oversight to. And that is a church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, along the Aegean Sea. So he stops in the port nearby, nearby called Miletus, and he calls for the elders, the pastor of the church, to come to him. And he looks them in the eyes, the pastors of this precious church, and says, this is the last time that I will see you. The tears flow. The weeping begins. And here is his last message to the elders in Acts 20. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it. Please hear the word of God. Paul says to the elders, verse 28 of chapter 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Sobering words, were they not? Well, Paul's word was right. It was prophetic. Nearly six years later, Paul is now speaking to Timothy of the church in Ephesus about the false teachers that have come in, that are slandering the gospel, that are tarnishing the reputation of the church in Ephesus. We see that word fulfilled. Today's passage, as is this whole letter, primarily is response to what is happening in the church in the false teaching in the scandalous, quarrelsome, divisive ways that had infiltrated the church. And Paul is rightly concerned. He says, Timothy, I must remind you how you elders must conduct yourself, both in the area of teaching as well as conduct that you and your lives and those who follow you would be a brave reproach to the watching world. That can preach today, and that has import for us today, does it not? Let us read the text that we're about to enter into this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and pick up on Paul's instructions to the church and to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, if you have a Bible, please open up to verse 1, and we'll be reading all the way through verse 13. Starting at the verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the combination of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith, that is the gospel, with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons 
if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's a lot there, isn't it? And I realize even this morning, as we read that, if your mind is like mine, it can become almost a little numb after reading so many lists. But I want you to catch the heart this morning. It's God's heart. It's God's character being reflected in us. And we see that in the text this morning and the reason why. But before we do that, just a clarification of terms here. In here in 1 Timothy, we hear the word overseer. The New Testament actually uses three terms, what we typically call a pastor. One of those terms is the word overseer. Another term used for pastor would be the word elder. The third term is pastor itself. Commentators would long agree that these three words don't represent distinct offices, but rather are interchangeable. So when you read the word overseer, elder, think pastor. Al and I, we are the elders and the pastors of Palm Vista. So Paul is addressing Timothy. Is he addressing the elders first? Appropriately so. He is addressing the leaders of the church. That it starts with them. They must accurately reflect the outworking of God's grace in their lives. God's character must first be seen in them. And then he refers, secondly, to deacons. Well, who are deacons? That word is somewhat slippery. Its use is manifold in the Bible. I think here it is referring to a certain office or function, not a pastoral or teaching or rulership function, but a key function of carrying out the work and supporting the elders in the church through practical ministry, through caring, coming alongside the pastors and caring for the flock through practical gifts, mercy, etc. Today in our church, we would refer to our home group leaders as deacons. So we have five home groups, five deacons. Perhaps there are more, but the idea is those who are serving in the church in a recognized role to help the ongoing work of the pastors among the congregation. So elders and deacons, Paul is referring to, and he starts with the leaders. Why? Because as you know, the elders are the face of the church, are they not? That's to you, but to an outside world who's looking in and watching. It's the elders who are to lead and to teach. It is they who hold the authority. It comes with teaching the word of God. But secondly, the elders also are there to be an example. An example to who? To you. To the church. That's sobering for Al and I. No, we're examples. But that's part of our calling as elders. But if we're to be examples... Who's to follow? It is you. So in other words, this text is speaking to elders and deacons, but it's also speaking to you. There's a word that set the example for you to follow. So the question is, not just are Alan Corey doing this? Does this fit Alan Corey? Very good question, very appropriate question, very relevant question. Does this describe me as well? Because what you see here are character traits, maturity, that we should see in the body of Christ. Well, why does the reputation of the church really matter to the outsiders? Why should we really be concerned? Isn't the gospel foolishness to those who are perishing? Did not Al allude to that earlier in the text you read? Well, if the gospel is foolishness, why should I care? Isn't that just fearing man? No, not in this case. I believe it's about fearing God. You see, I realize the gospel will be offensive to some. But Lord, may it not be that anything that I do in my character put a needless offense before those who are looking at the church. May the offense be the gospel, not my life. That puts the fear of God in me. May my life not bring reproach 
to the precious gospel and to the church of God's redeemed. And that is the heart. You see, character matters because the church matters. Character matters because the church matters in God's eyes. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, which I read. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is to be a pastor, he desires a noble task. That word desire literally means if he covets, if he lusts for this noble task, literally noble task, is this excellent, noble work. Why is the work of a pastor, why is the work of serving the church noble? It's not because of the person. At least a small p. It's because of the person. Big P, okay? Because of God himself. Because of the church. It is an excellent work because it is the work of God. The church is the work of God on display for the whole world to see. And it is excellent. It is good. It is to be aspired to. It is noble because the church belongs to God. So before we look at how we should live above reproach, we must look at why we should live above reproach. And that brings you to point number one on your notes. Why? For the sake of the church. You see, the church is God's possession. As I read earlier in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God Here it is, which he obtained with his own blood. The church belongs to God. It is his treasured possession. You see, I love the outdoors. I love hiking. I love the snow-capped mountains. I love the tropical beaches. I would love to see the Grand Canyon someday in all its grandeur. And I know that all those things point back to God as creator. They are witness to God in his creative majesty. But there's only one thing that testifies to God in his saving work, humanly speaking, what trees and rocks and mountains and beaches cannot do, and that's the church. See the distinction? Only the church can properly display the salvific work of God. Why? Because the church is in this auditorium. The church isn't in the name. The church is you. It's the redeemed. It's those God has saved and brought into his family. You are the church. And it is you and you only who can, humanly speaking, reflect God's character to an outside world. God's church. God's possession. But secondly, if we are his possession, how does he possess us? Not just some inanimate object. No, 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 no. He calls us his family. We are the household of God. And Paul loves to use that term here in 1 Timothy. Miguel's going to preach on it next week a little more, this term, the household of God. But I want to bring it up now because I think it informs our understanding of all the commands that follow. We're God's household. That's personal. It's personal to God. It's a personal feel, is it not? Why? It implies he is our father, and we are his sons and daughters. We are his children. You know what else that means? You're my brother, and you're my sister as well. This is a family affair, and it's personal. And I think you can relate to that, can you not? This analogy of the church being God's household. I think it hits home to every parent. We realize as parents that how our children behave have a reflection. It's a reflection of our leadership in the home. We know that. I know that how my children act in the grocery store, in the library, on the playground, speaks volumes about me as a father and Cindy as a mother. And I know that conclusions are being drawn about me as they see my children. Conclusion would be made about God the Father and his household based on what he sees. People see in you, his children. I wish I could say that every time my child 
hypothetically speaking, begins to cry, have a tantrum in Publix, or has the kid in a full Nelson in the playground, (laughs) then my first reaction would be, oh, the soul of my child. I am concerned for the soul of my child. That is not the first thought that goes to my head. How could they do that? What an embarrassment. What are the other parents thinking? Okay? That honestly is going through my head. How does this reflect upon me? Selfishly, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. Oh my, oh my, okay. Woo, okay, I got work to do here. Work to do. You see, our character and our conduct matters, starting with the leaders and starting with our own household. You see, the days that Paul was writing, the church actually met in the house. Much like our home groups meet in homes, the church on Sunday, Saturday where they met, would have been in homes. So yes, it was very important how the elders and the leaders connected themselves in their house because the church was most likely in their house or that of a deacon. But the analogy carries through today as well and the mandate for elders and deacons to watch and manage their household well remains. And you should care about it. You should care about how I conduct my life in my home among my children. It's everything to do with how I and how I'll lead you here. And once again, that's sobering for me to say, but that is reality of the call. And you should care about how you conduct life in your home. Because it does have a bearing, how you relate to your children and spouse does have a bearing how you relate to one another in the church. To say otherwise, I think is to be in denial. Because it is God's household. Cindy and I live in a townhome where our family really is always on display. We're connected to neighbors on the right and to the left. We live in an all-tile home. What does that mean? Everything we say, everything we do, is heard by our neighbors. We are on full display all the time. We have no fence in our backyard. Everything is public. It is open, okay? They can see in. They can see us. Well, our family is on full display this Friday evening. I really wish I didn't have to share the story. <laughs> God has a way of bringing illustrations to heart right before you preach. Do you remember the rats? <laughs> a few weeks ago, if you were here when I preached, the story has not ended. <laughs> Part two. For those who weren't here, I was speaking about the analogy of rats in our walls much like sin in our own lives. We want to ignore the rats. We want to ignore our sin. But the rats, our sin will not just go away. And our rats have not just gone away. I mean, with Alan and Desi on Tuesday night, they asked me, so how's it going with the rats? I said, well, I think the last one left. I've capped all the vents on the roof. I think the last one left the door doing well. Lo and behold, we came home from dinner that night. Oh, the rats. Or the rats. I'm not even sure. We're back. This week, we've had okay, droppings all over the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom. That was worse enough. Then this week, we started finding piles of wood shavings. The rats can't get out of the roof, so they come into the walls into our bedrooms. What happens is our bedrooms or our bathroom doors are closed. They want to get out. So they've been eating away at our doors. We have two or three doors that are now chiseled by rats. Literally a pile, I mean not a little bit, a lot of wood shavings. They're eating through our doors. So we have droppings, we have wood shavings. And we have sightings as well. These rats are getting bold now, okay? They want to get out. Now, I think rats are nocturnal animals, they're night animals. Oh no, but now I've seen them in broad daylight. I've seen them in the hallway. They're mocking me, they're taunting me. <laughs> Midday. Our kids now have seen the rats. Are kids sleeping? No, they're not sleeping at night. No. So where are they sleeping? They're sleeping in our beds. Are we sleeping? No, we're not sleeping. Am I tired? Yes, I'm tired today. Is Cindy tired? Yes, she is very tired. We're on 24-hour alert now in our house. Rats. Well, Thursday came the moment. I saw the rat. I chased it into the bedroom, into the little shoe bin. I saw it. We were three feet away, nose to nose. And it wasn't even shuddering at me. 
but I couldn't grab it because it was delving back into the shoe. I had a bucket, I had a broom, I had a library book. All I had with me. It was sad. Well, it escaped. I am fuming Thursday evening. It's now warfare. It's all-out warfare. It's nuclear holocaust, okay? Warfare in the smidgen household, okay? I'm determined to get this rat. So we buy some butterfly uh, nets. Cindy did. And the next Sunday, excuse me, the next day, Friday, it occurred, right before we have to leave for a dinner appointment, I walk in, and there's the rat in the hallway. I'm mocking, let this bugger go. So we trap it behind a little wooden buffet, and I grab it. I get it right in the net. I put two nets over it. I run outside. Just as I get outside in the driveway, the rat pops out. My net into the street. My kids are thinking this is pretty fun now. So all four run out barefooted. They're in the street, and they are chasing the rat down the street, in the middle of the street, all four little bodies, (laughs) down the neighborhood. It's such a spectacle that our neighbors stopped, and they're all watching us from the side of the street, just laughing at us. If there's a rat, and there's four little <laughs> kids, eight little pair of feet, okay, eight feet, scurrying down. That wasn't the worst of it. About five minutes later, my children come back to, Daddy, Daddy, the rat went into our neighbor's garage. And they're very unhappy at you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Okay, I should have left my dinner appointment 20 minutes ago, okay? I go into the garage, and the wife is shuddering behind the garage door into their kitchen. She can't bear to look out. She is so frightened. The husband is just frantically spraying everything in the garage. I don't know where the rat is. I said, I'm so sorry. But I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go. Oh. Well, my name is Dirt pretty much in the neighborhood now, okay? <laughs> oh. Oh, it's been a rough week. Listen, if I can't properly deal with a rat problem in my own house, I'm not qualified to be a professional trapper, okay? I'm not qualified to give lectures on pest control. If truly no one wanted to hire me, it would be a farce. It would be a mockery. This is what Paul is saying in the text when he makes the link between our household and the household of God. If you can't properly care for your own children... How can you care for the children of God? After this story, you're probably wondering if I'm qualified (laughs) to care for the church after hearing about my family. Uh, We are a work in progress. But I'm so faithful to Sovereign Grace Ministries in particular. Even this, the whole ordination process, and I want you to know as well that part of an ordination as a pastor within our movement, it's a lengthy process. It is because this ordination is not just about an oral exam or a written exam. Those are all very important to discern your biblical knowledge and that's your ability to teach. But a long time is taken to look at our families. And I appreciate that. It's humbling. Can Corey lead his family? Because he cannot. There's no reason to talk about leading the church, okay? I want you to know the confidence that we are far from perfect. You know us. You know our children. The process is there to protect you and to protect the church and protect us as well. It's there that we may qualify as elders and know how to lead the household of God because we have seen God's favor in how we lead our own household, starting with our wives and our children. You see, what I do in private is not really a private matter. As I mentioned before, you should be concerned because we're part of the household of God. You have a vested interest in how I parent my children. And I am to be the example. Alice to be the example. But you're also to follow as well. And I have a vested interest in how you parent as well. And if you don't have any children, not yet married, still how you connect yourself in your household where you live. It is important. I read an article recently which continued this dialogue on the importance of character, particularly as it relates to civil service and government, particularly as it relates to the President of the United States. And this commentator, this political analysis analyst, said this. It shocked me. He said, the, the job of the President of the United States 
is not to love his wife. It's to manage a wide range of complicated issues. I thought, man, is this guy married? I love my wife. But to love my wife means I'm managing a lot of complicated issues, okay? Because I'm dealing with the hearts, okay? I'm just being honest here. Yeah. No, no, how I love Cindy has much to do with how I manage the complicated issues of the church, all right? In fact, it qualifies me. Well, if character and reputation does matter, how then shall we live? Based on the importance of the church and its reputation, elders must, see here, must be above reproach. You are called likewise to live a life above reproach. What does that mean? Point two, lead a life that is above reproach. There's a lot of things listed in this passage. But what you must catch is that very first phrase. Verse 2, overseer must be above reproach. That is the overarching term used to describe the list that follows from this term. We must be above reproach. If you catch something else, please catch that. There is an idea in this passage that comes out clearly that people are watching. There are outsiders. Words are used, being above reproach. Verse 2, respectable. Verse 4, all dignity. Verse 7, not fall into disgrace. Verse 8, dignified. Verse 10, blameless. Verse 11, dignified. You catch it? These are the concern about how we are being perceived in the eyes of those in the church as well as those outside. Verse 7, these qualifications are public. They're observable. They're traits of leadership given to protect the church. See, apart from the function to teach and to care for God's household, all these other things right here, qualifications, are just issues of character, of maturity. We've got to be careful here. God is not saying to us, you must be above reproach, i.e. you must be perfect and will be perfect. Now, the issue right here is not about perfection. The issue here is about perception, okay? Yes, we are all sinners. None of us are perfect. And if you read it that way, you will feel condemned as you read this list. Not about perfection. It's about perception. How others see you. Do they see God's character formed in you? That's the real issue of all that follows. Like I mentioned earlier, it's easy to look at these words and get a little numb. There's so many things listed. I have listed the terms there, the character traits, the qualities in your notes for you. But here's the point. What do we mean, Corey, when you say above reproach? I like into this. When I was younger, I loved to play with these little Velcro balls. There were plastic balls with Velcro strips around them. And you threw them at a target. They'd have rings with different point assignments. It was kind of like a benign game of darts. You would throw the Velcro ball at the target, hopefully with a stick, and you'd get so many points. Simple enough. As you grew older, in college, I admit, it got a little boring just to play with the Velcro balls against the wall. So we'd throw the balls at one another, seeing if they would stick. So what does above reproach mean? Do the accusations here stick? Do these accusations characterize or describe you? So I throw the ball, quarrelsome. Do you feel it stick? Yeah, yeah. Violent, pugnacious. Does it stick? Children are submissive. Does it stick? Or does it fall off you? To be above reproach is for that ball to hit you and fall off. It doesn't stick. It doesn't describe me. Oh, yes, I may have, <laughs> at times, all those may have characterized me. But the accusations, they don't stick. You're above reproach. Well, who's hurling, hurling these balls at you? <laughs> the flesh, yeah. yeah. The evil one, Satan, yes. But the world as well. Those outside as well are throwing these balls at us. 
at times even accusing us, even at times labeling us Christians as hypocrites. You see, to sin as a Christian is not to be a hypocrite. No, that doesn't stick. To be a hypocrite is to conceal your sin and not fight your sin. Simply give in and not fight and conceal it. That's a hypocrite. No. The world is ready to label us as hypocrites, aren't they? Are you above reproach in these areas? I want to see something else as well. Most of the... Let me quote one commentator here. It says, The most extraordinary thing about the biblical prerequisites for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. What are they? This list you see in your notes? It's really gospel fruit. It's really gospel behaviors that stem from the gospel at work in your life. It's what should be true of all believers, of me as well as you. These qualifications will be broken down into two areas. Number one, in your notes, personal self-discipline and maturity. Number two, ability to relate well to others and for elders to teach and care for them. Well, A, personal self-discipline and maturity. In both lists here, both in 1 Timothy Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the first and foremost description given to elders and deacons that they are to be a husband of one wife. The phrase literally means in the Greek, a one-woman man. And that's helpful. Paul's not saying that an elder has to be married. He's not merely saying they can't be polygamists, have many wives. No, he's saying he's not committed adultery. He's quoting the law. It's synonymous with that. He's saying, oh no, your affections, your eyes, your heart, directed towards one woman and woman alone your wife. You shall be above reproach in your marital and your sexual life. Why is it so important? We've been taught, I think, well here, Ephesians 5. Why? Because the marriage relationship, husband to wife, is a picture of the church, Christ to his church. So why is it so important, husband to one wife? Oh, it's very important because it's speaking of the gospel. It's speaking of the church. It is important. This sin alone has probably taken down more men in ministry than any other. And the witness of the church has suffered. Next, sober-minded, temperate. In other words, this is in verse 2. Free from every form of excess or passion is to be clear-headed, self-controlled, not given to binges, binges of self-indulgence or passions that would cloud your reason and distort clear, true, biblical wisdom because you're clear-minded, sober-minded. You are temperate. In other words, are you controlling your appetites for food, for drink, for entertainment? Or are they controlling you? That's the issue here. Next, self-control and respectable. They go together. They often appear together in Scripture. It's referring to an orderliness, a proper behavior, Is your life defined by disorder? Is your life, is your household defined by chaos? The home. How about the workplace? Next, not a drunkard. Verse 3 following. Not a lover of money. This warning against greed appears in every list of qualifications of leadership. It is important to God. It is important to us. Oh, next to sexual immorality. I'm not sure there's a sin that can destroy the witness and vitality of a church. How can I do that? Because so often this love of money can fly under the radar, even our own notice. But it can lead to so many other vices, covering up, corruption, dishonesty, just a spiritual apathy, no hunger for the things of God because our appetites and our focus and intentions are set on the material, on money itself and what it can buy. Well, how do you know if you're a lover of money? It's hard sometimes to discern. Well, are you content with what God has given you? Are you in your heart really content with God's provision for you individually, for your family, 
for this church. We must not be lovers of money. We must not be a recent convert, speaking of elders, i.e., literally, no newly planted person. Why? Because they are prone to pride and would fall into the same trap. The devil himself will then do his pride that brought him down, that thought he could compete and be God. B, the ability also to relate well to others and to teach and care for them. To be hospitable, back, back up to verse 2. What does hospitable mean? It literally means to be lover of strangers. Isn't that great? I didn't know that until this week. Lover of strangers. This was an expectation of the early church. I think hospitality probably is one of our greater gifts here at Palm Vista, and I am so thankful for it. I think it's a strength, and it's a reputation that is God-honoring. I want to read an email that I received just this week. I was so encouraged by it. I want you to take encouragement by it as well. It comes from a single from our sister church in St. Petersburg, Gulf Coast Community Church. Last weekend, we had a number of singles from that church come down to join our singles for a St. Patrick's Day celebration. So we put them up in different homes. They were there on Saturday night. I didn't know many of them. They also came to the service on Sunday. Well, the singles leader, John, who was down here, wrote me an email this week. He wasn't just writing to me. He was writing to our church and to our singles. He said this, I just wanted to express my gratitude on behalf of all those who from St. Petersburg who attended your St. Patrick's Day party this weekend. Ryan, who used to lead the singles, had often spoken well of your church and your incredible gift of hospitality. But I was honestly shocked with how good it was. Thank you to your entire group and all those who planned and hosted the event. I've attended numerous Sovereign Grace churches around the country, and the kindness shown to us by Paul and Vista's members was pretty much unparalleled. Your example had an influence. Yes, they are believers, but in many ways they were strangers to you. Take encouragement singles. You don't have to have a house or your own family to be hospitable. Do you love strangers who come here on Sunday? How do you relate to them? He's not talking about just the people he stayed with last week. He's talking about those at the party who interacted with them, who greeted them on Sunday. He's saying, thank you, thank you. That had an influence. That glorified God. That gave them a better picture of the church of God and the character of God himself. Amen. May that be our desire. May God use hospitality, not only to reach other believers, but even the unchurched. This Thursday, we have Alpha. Why do I love Alpha? Many reasons. It gives a clear gospel presentation. But more than that, it's an opportunity to exercise hospitality, to provide a meal for them in a comfortable setting where they can talk and interact and get to know us and we get to know them. May God use hospitality to be a shining example, to display God to a broken and lost world. May he use Alpha. There's a reason Scripture says pursue hospitality. Oh, it is vitally important to the life of our church into God's glory. There's also a reason that scripture says do hospitality without grumbling. Okay? Because it's difficult. I praise my wife for the hospitality she does. It is hard work. But it is worthwhile. And we will see the fruit. And we already have the church. Next, able to teach. Verse 2. This is also a characteristic, but particularly of an elder. It's the only item really that implies function. It implies ability knowledge of the truth, and the ability to communicate truth that each elder must have, and the ability thus to refute error and bad doctrine. An elder must have much more than just this gift. He must have the character qualities listed, but he cannot have less. He must have this gift. Because as Al mentioned last week, teaching and authority go together. We wield authority through our teaching. They are integrally connected. Thus, they are the role of male eldership. Next, not violent but gentle. Must not be a fighter, that is. Must not be irritable. This word gentle really doesn't quite communicate all that it could. It really means to be forbearing, to be gracious. 
I dare to say if hospitality is one of our stronger gifts at Palm Vista, this may be one of our weaker character traits. I don't know. I just suspect it at times. To be gentle means to patiently yield and when appropriate, overlook sin. That is yielding when possible rather than always standing up for your rights. The picture I have here is of driving and yielding to those who might want to cut in front of you in traffic or those dinglings who drive on the shoulder of the road during a traffic jam to get ahead. Not that I would ever do that, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. They come on the shoulder, and at the last minute when there's cones in that far left lane, they want to jet in front of you. Well, what do you do at that time? If you're like me, you want to put on the accelerator? You want to ride their bumper for a little bit. I want to send a message to them. How many times do we do this in relationships? When wronged, that you ride the other person's bumper. You just nag them. You fight back. You give them the attitude. You give them the tude. You let them know, I'm not happy. And you ride their bumper for their sin, all the while dismissing your own sin, their own log in your own eye, how easy it is to do. Is there an allowance for sin in your relationships and to be sinned against? If you're self-righteous, there isn't any. Sometimes it's the glory of God to overlook sin, especially among the weak, especially among strangers, especially among outsiders. Next, verse 3, not quarrelsome, i.e. peaceable. Would others call you that, peaceable? Next, must manage his household well. We've already covered that, so important. Next, well thought of by outsiders. This is really the bracket to the whole text. Live above reproach. Here's how you do it. Moreover, be careful because outsiders are watching. Be well thought of by outsiders. This gives a bracket to this meaning, our understanding of what it means to be above reproach. Above reproach for the sake of the church's witness. To be well thought of brings glory to God in the church. To be judged as wanting by non-believers. You see, non-believers are sometimes the best judge of our character. They may not deliver it the right way, but they can be brutally honest, can't they? And in doing so, bring shame and disgrace, both to you as the individual and to the church. Oh, when we leave today, church, seeing that everything we do, even seemingly insignificant, conversations, our attitudes, our work has a bearing on the witness of the household of God. The way you greet your mailman or your neighbor when you come home from work, your daily exercise and eating habits, the way you fill out your tax returns, the way you react to construction on the palmetto, the way you speak with your spouse in private and strangers in public, has a bearing on the witness of our church. Once we become Christians, you see, our sin ceases to be just about ourselves and those we affect in God. Oh, yes, our sin's about our offense against God. Yes, our sin affects others. But at times, I'm afraid we've did a disservice to you in not emphasizing the third leg of the stool. And that is, your sin has an effect on the witness of the church. How does it affect the church? That's a great issue for accountability, is it not? To see your sin, I need to see my own sin. Then please help me to see how this sin has tarnished the reputation of God's household. It's worth delving into, looking at the ramifications of reproach and also being above reproach. I want to conclude with this. There is grace this morning. After Paul gives a very similar description to the character qualities of deacons, he concludes with verse 13. If you have your Bibles open, please look at it. He says this to the deacons. Verse 13 of chapter 3. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. These descriptions aren't given to condemn us today. But please see it as God's grace. Whenever you can say that accusation doesn't stick, we should then say, praise God. That is God's grace. That is God's transforming grace at work in my life. I once was this, but no longer. That no longer characterizes me. Oh, yes, I still blow it. I get angry. But by God's grace, I'm not who I once was. I have changed the glory of God. And others can see it. And family can see it. And that testifies of God's power and greatness. Praise be to God. So you see, the facts here are not just about isolating sin. It's also about seeing what God is doing. That, that, that's not me. That doesn't stick. You can throw the balls all you can. It's going to bounce off me. It doesn't matter. Because God is changing me. There is grace, and it's working in my life. May you also see the evidence of the grace. It may be a source of confidence in your faith that Christ Jesus is at work in your life and in our church. I see it today in you. Hospitality is just one way I see it. I could be here listing many other ways. I see God at work in your lives. Thank you for your example, church. May we all live up to the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus. If I can invite Miguel up here and the worship team as well. We'll conclude with appropriate worship of God's grace. In the back of your notes, you'll find some questions. I urge you to go through. We'll be going through them in some form as well this Wednesday night in our couples home group. But I ask that you go through ahead of time. Do the exercise. Do the hard work of looking at this note, looking at these notes and looking at this list. Check off. Yeah, Lord, this is the area I need to work at. Yes, Lord, that's where you're growing me. Praise God. Circle it. Underline it. Mark it up. And talk to your friend. Talk to your spouse. Talk to the home group when you meet on Wednesday. And let's glorify God at what he's doing in our lives, that we would be a witness that honors and glorifies God. All right, Miguel, take it away.